Jane Jacobs is best known for the sidewalk ballet, but it's far from the only idea in her book. Not only does she state the conditions for generating a healthy neighborhood, but she also shows how a healthy neighborhood can decline, how a slum can rise, how misguided planning keeps those slums down, and how she thinks a city should be set up. But I worry that the balance of population Jacobs imagined has shifted in a way that allows a city to become a paragon of health in her eyes, but that many people simply cannot afford. I'm Ajay Pandey, and this is Perfectly Nice Neighbors, an exploration of gentrification in the Boston area. Jacobs notes that a healthy, diverse neighborhood need not stay that way. After all, we live in a capitalist system, and capitalist systems are best modeled by differential equations. Some things grow exponentially until they collapse, and others run sinusoids through boom and bust cycles. Neighborhood diversity does the latter. You start with a gray, boring, single-use neighborhood. Not a slum, but not interesting either. If this neighborhood is found to be important real estate, then businesses and industries will start competing for space. This competition builds diversity, as offices, theaters, residential buildings, and the like build on a relative bargain. As the competition builds, that neighborhood might become a genuinely interesting place to be, and then you have your magical sidewalk ballet. But any competition must have a winner. And eventually, some primary use will come out as the winner in your neighborhood. Maybe your neighborhood becomes a hub for biotech research. Then, more and more biotech companies will come in because it's the hub for biotech research, and they'll crowd out everything else until you once again get a gray, boring, single-use neighborhood. Isn't capitalism the best? Jacobs offers some solutions. First, one can, quote, zone for diversity. If a neighborhood is getting a lot of big high-rises, the zoning board or planning board can reject a proposal for another high-rise and say, no, build somewhere else. We have enough high-rises here. It's not too different from preserving historical buildings, which also involves telling developers, no, build somewhere else. The idea is that neighborhood diversity can collapse by getting too much of a good thing, so it's partially up to the zoning and planning boards to keep that from happening. Jacobs suggests playing with taxation levels to do that. She prefers carrots to sticks in general. More importantly, this strategy requires prioritizing long-term thinking over short-term gains. I don't know how well local governments do with this, but the federal government isn't giving me much hope. Second, the city government can be smart about where they put their own buildings. If they're building a public theater, they can put it in the financial district. If they're building a new branch of a library, they can squeeze it into a residential area. In this way, they're inducing diversity with just their own buildings. The government must keep those buildings there, no matter how profitable the neighborhood becomes. These public buildings then become a way of holding back the construction of too much of a good thing in a neighborhood. And finally, the city can bring as many neighborhoods up to those four conditions of diversity. Multiple primary uses, small blocks, a close-grained mix of new and old buildings, and high density. In the end, we're in a capitalist system, so we're stuck with boom-bust cycles. However, if a city has multiple neighborhoods that can sustain these cycles, 
then even if one neighborhood is made boring by too much of a good thing, there's still somewhere interesting to go. But I don't think any of these strategies fight gentrification. I wonder how easily the rhetoric of, quote, zoning for diversity could devolve into the not-my-backyard rhetoric that is stalling attempts to build affordable housing in the California Bay Area. And as we saw last week in the North End, the conditions of a diverse city neighborhood don't guarantee that the neighborhood will be affordable to working-class people. Jane Jacobs is really fascinated by slums, but not in a morbid, crime-obsessed way. Instead, she sees them more as promising places for the people who live there. In fact, she sees a process by which, quote, rough neighborhoods can become genuinely nice places to be, one that her neighborhood, Greenwich Village, went through. She calls it unslumming, but to understand unslumming, one must understand what Jacobs means by slum. She doesn't mean a poor neighborhood, or a dense neighborhood, or a neighborhood with old buildings. Her definition of a slum is a place where people don't want to live. The residents of slums live in slums because they have no other choice, and the moment they have the capacity to leave, they leave. That's it. The overcrowding, the crime, the crumbling infrastructure, they're all symptoms of the main problem. That the only people who could truly help the neighborhood rise up the residents with tangible wealth, leave immediately. It's a vicious cycle. The people who could improve the place understandably leave. They're replaced by more people with no better options, and you end up with a neighborhood with high turnover, minimal community as a result, and few people really equipped to make things better. Jacobs argues that programs to address slums mostly focus on those symptoms, and they too often are paternalistic. They assume that poor people are incapable of making productive decisions, which is a belief that continues to influence public policy in 2017. At most, these programs shift the slum somewhere else, or turn the slum into an island of blight no one touches, or demolish the place and build a low-income housing project that doesn't improve anything. Unslumming is different. Unslumming is what happens when people decide to stay. When that happens, when people who come across a little more money, a little more success, decide to stay, they start to uncrowd. They find a bigger home in their neighborhood. Maybe find a separate place for their parents. They set up businesses there, help fix up a few of the buildings. If enough people do this, they can slow, then reverse, the vicious cycle of slums. Overcrowding disperses. Then, the population rises as immigrants and newcomers move into a place worth being in, and the neighborhood slowly comes to life. That's what happened in the North End around the 50s. Everyone wins when this happens, even the people who don't actually get richer, because the residents slowly build a place worth living in, and the rest of the city gets a place worth going to. But according to Jacobs, that happy ending is rather rare. More often, unslumming is stifled, Sometimes, it's the result of lack of resources. Banks don't lend folks money, so construction and renovation doesn't get to happen. But other times, other forces clear-cut the whole neighborhood. You see, people don't get rich off unslumming neighborhoods. 
slumlords, like the son-in-law of the president, get very rich off slums, and housing barons make a fortune off high-rent properties. An unslumming neighborhood is neither of these cash cows. It has shaken off the predatory tactics slumlords depend on, but doesn't have high enough rents to make the barons happy either. But now that the unslumming neighborhood is less of a cesspool, middle-income people aren't scared to be there anymore. Unlike a true slum, which is a place one never goes, the unslumming neighborhood is ripe for revitalization, ready for luxury residences to make real estate companies very rich. Textbook gentrification. However, this is one of the few references to gentrification Jacobs makes. Her theory about how slums form might explain why. A neighborhood becomes a slum because of a mass exodus of people. That's the initial catalyst that hollows out a neighborhood and turns it into a slum. Jacobs thinks this process of slumming is caused by stagnation and dullness and rationalized by racism. I think racism played a bigger role in that exodus. In 2017, the presence of minorities can still make white people scared enough to inflict violence. And if that's what unconscious, repressed racism can do, imagine what 1961 racism could do. It's called white flight for a reason. Then again, Jacobs pointed out a hollowed-out neighborhood that used to be majority white, so it's not just racism either. Anyway, once you have that mass exodus, you get a bunch of properties that people clearly didn't want to live in. But thanks to the power of poverty and discriminatory housing practices, certain savory characters can make a fortune preying off people who have no other choice. And through racism and xenophobia, those people tend to be immigrants and people of color. But here's the kicker. The people who left first, the middle and higher income folks, where did they go? Here's a little quote on page 275. The reasons for slum formation and the processes by which it happens have changed surprisingly little over the decades. What is new is that unfit neighborhoods can be deserted more swiftly and slums can and do spread thinner and farther than was the case in the days before automobiles and government-guaranteed mortgages for suburban developers. That's where they went. The suburbs. Suburbanization boomed in the post-war era that Jacobs was writing about. This book was written in the era of Leave it to Beaver, of Levitt Towns, of the Federal Housing Administration giving 98% of its housing loans to white people. Back then, there was a push for white, middle-income folks to move to the suburbs. But what if that pressure reversed directions, pushing the kids and grandkids of those middle-income suburban families back to cities? Let's return to that thought later. Related to the issue of slums is the issue of how money is distributed for urban development. Jacobs rightfully argues that the best money is gradual money, a slow trickle of funds to maintain, rebuild, and develop over time. However, urban development money is often cataclysmic money, a financial roller coaster alternating between drought and flood that starves and drowns neighborhoods. 
that cataclysmic money comes in three forms. Conventional money, private lenders, banks, insurance companies, and other respected avenues of credit. Government money, grants, subsidies, federal loans, and other ways that Uncle Sam pays for things to be built. And shadow money, high interest loans, subprime mortgages, and other nefarious tools of slumlords and loan sharks. The shadow money is always malignant, of course. But the other two sources contribute to the dominance of shadow money and add to its destructive power. To Jacobs, there's a clear process of money deprivation and overspending that keeps poor people poor. First, the conventional money, the private lenders, stop lending to poor neighborhoods. They blacklist those neighborhoods. It's classic short-term logic. Why lend money to poor people? So, those neighborhoods get no money, which, as we noted before, keeps slums from undoing their vicious cycle of decay. In the absence of reputable funding, the keepers of shadow money come in to prey on the helpless. And eventually, the government gets tired of looking at the mess in these neighborhoods and spends gobs of money to demolish them and install housing projects. Those housing projects follow the Garden City model by separating main uses and telling residents what they are to do with given spaces, so those projects fall to the great blight of dullness, which we talked about last week. I wonder whether the process of conventional lenders financing an endless rush of new glass and steel high-rises is similarly cataclysmic. The answer may lie in the fate of the Boston waterfront, where such a rush is happening as we speak. This is clearly a fixable problem. Jacobs suggests addressing the shadow money issue by taxing the gains made through depreciated property, which is apparently how slumlords make their money. Again, Jacobs is more about carrots than sticks. She's not advocating cities to regulate slumlords out of existence, but to remove the incentive to be a slumlord, which I'm sure would make Jared Kushner very happy. Alec McGillis has a May 2017 New York Times piece about Mr. Kushner's noble dealings. I just want to cite my sources. But Jacobs makes another, more interesting suggestion. A better use for the money the government would otherwise spend on housing projects, which she calls the Office of Dwelling Subsidies. The final section of Death and Life is a list of policy actions Jacobs suggests for improving cities. This is what makes Jacobs an activist and not a pundit. She has ideas. She proposes that the best way to reduce traffic is to make driving through the city such a hassle that no one bothers. The alternative response of making a city friendlier to cars spreads the city out, requiring more cars, running a feedback loop that only reaches equilibrium for suburbs. She then talks about the aesthetics of cities, first arguing that cities are not works of art and cannot be designed as such, then, again, saying that homogeneity is the work of Satan and that one must avoid it wherever possible. Then, she proposes salvaging low-income projects, which are generally slums, by applying the same four principles of healthy neighborhoods to catalyze unslumming and then by integrating the project into the rest of the city. The residents of middle-income projects apparently are too scared of the outside city to do such a thing, 
and I wonder whether the residents of luxury apartments are similarly scared. And Jacobs proposes restructuring city governments to focus as many services down to district level as possible. For services like the police and public works, there should be a point person who intimately knows the district and bears responsibility only for that district. Jacobs is all about local government. If it can be done at a more local level, it should. But Jacobs offers one suggestion that's directly relevant to our quest to understand gentrification. Let's get back to the Office of Dwelling Subsidies, or ODS. The ODS would be a government agency. I think it would be federal or state level, but Jacobs didn't specify. It would be dedicated to financing housing for low-income people in a way that fosters city diversity. The ODS would make a simple deal with builders with two guarantees and two requirements. Guarantee 1. The builder would get financing for construction. If private lenders offer loans, the ODS would back them. If no private lender offered a loan, and only if no private lender offered a loan, the ODS would offer a loan themselves. Guarantee 2. The rent the builder or subsequent owner receives from the resulting building will pay for the cost of the building. Requirement 1. The ODS picks the neighborhood and perhaps the exact plot the new building must go up in. Requirement 2. The builder must pick tenants from a neighborhood or set of buildings the ODS picks. Once the building goes up, the ODS looks at the income numbers, and only the income numbers, of the tenants coming in to calculate the rent those tenants could afford. Then, the ODS calculates the rent of the building so that it meets guarantee 2. And finally, the ODS pays the difference between what the calculated rent is and what the tenants can afford. That's the subsidy. As the tenants get wealthier, they pay a larger percentage of the rent. And if a tenant can afford the rent on their own, they can keep living in that building, and the ODS leaves them alone. The idea is that the more the recipients are able to pay their own rent, the more money is freed up for the ODS to finance more subsidized housing. There are a few interesting details here. First, the ODS is a very bare-bones agency. Private builders do the building, private lenders give the loans wherever possible, and local governments do the regulating. Jacobs doesn't want big government to treat poor people as guinea pigs. She is all about small government, as in local government. Second, the ODS does not own the subsidized buildings, unlike housing projects which are owned by the government. These buildings are privately owned, which means they pay taxes that the ODS factors into the calculated rent. This means that ODS subsidies indirectly feed into municipal budgets, helping fund public services and, crucially, local schools. Third, because the ODS subsidizes individual buildings, and because it decides where those buildings are, it can induce diversity through smart placement of buildings, it can spread out affordable housing instead of clustering all the poor people into one area, and it doesn't have to clear-cut neighborhoods. And finally, Jacobs recognizes that these guidelines could become stale, and recommends refreshing them every 10 years ago, to keep everyone on their feet, to frustrate corruption, and to keep from addressing the problems of a decade ago. Smart, gradual, decentralized, public money. It almost sounds feasible. But I wonder how great the incentive would have to be to convince builders in 2017 to build affordable housing. There's clearly extreme incentive to build luxury condos, otherwise there wouldn't be so many. Jacobs said it herself. Non-predatory housing for low-income residents 
makes no one rich. And how would the ODS address the high rents of large cities? If there was an ODS building in the middle of Back Bay, how much would the government have to subsidize tenants just so they could live there? Would that cost be prohibitive? And if the ODS, for whatever reason, underestimates the rent of a building, what's to stop a landlord from evicting a tenant the moment they no longer receive ODS subsidies? And what about the cost of living outside of rent? Would tenants of ODS buildings be near a grocery store that meets their budget? Could they afford any of the goods and services around them? I like fancy cafes, but they're too expensive for a lot of people. And who would want an ODS building next to them? I can already hear the angry voices in the public planning board meetings. That building will become a cesspool of vice in my neighborhood. It takes away homes from middle class Americans. It will house illegals and degenerates. Imagine if a house in Beacon Hill was retrofitted and subsidized by the ODS and populated by people of color. Inducing diversity in such a neighborhood would be a priority for the ODS, but would that building fly? I worry that ODS buildings would inflame the racist, classist, xenophobic, not-in-my-backyard tendencies that are stalling construction of affordable housing in San Francisco and leading to poor doors in New York City residential buildings. <sighs> I'm starting to realize that gentrification is about more than poor people not affording their homes anymore. It's about higher income people keeping the working class at arm's length, close enough to flatter their egalitarian sensibilities, maybe, but no closer. Jane Jacobs spends the last five pages of The Death and Life of Great American Cities to defend the very idea of cities against the then-advancing threat of suburbanization. She saw suburbs as a cruelly misguided attempt to find the pastoral simplicity of a past that never existed, bulldozing real pastures to develop simulacra of countryside living, devoid of both the energy of cities and the beauty of the natural world that was clear-cut for yet another street to yet more beige houses. She wrote, The semi-suburbanized and suburbanized messes we create in this way become despised by their own inhabitants tomorrow. These thin dispersions lack any reasonable degree of innate vitality, staying power, or inherent usefulness as settlements. Few of them, and these only the most expensive as a rule, hold their attraction much longer than a generation. Then they begin to decay in the pattern of city gray areas. Thirty years from now, we shall have accumulated new problems of blight and decay over acreages so immense that in comparison, the present problems of the great city's gray belts will look piddling. I think she was right, although for more reasons than she expected. Back in the 50s and 60s, the suburbs were the place to be. But now, I think it's the city. And not just cities. Big cities, like Boston and Seattle and New York and San Francisco. Those concentrations of people offer many of the jobs in services and healthcare, those sectors of jobs with the fastest growth these days. And cities like Boston are considered hubs for the latest and greatest technology and biotech firms. 
where do you think the best scientists and engineers are going, and how much do you think they're getting paid? Then is it any wonder that pretty much every part of the city is gentrifying? Even Chelsea, a city that hasn't caught a break in decades, that has been the place one drives through, that isn't even easy to get to, is starting to feel the influence of market forces as educated emerging adults from the suburbs. People like me are chasing jobs in the big cities because that's where they are, concluding they can't afford a house or don't want to deal with the commute from the suburbs and not caring about the urban school system because they're putting off kids or maybe looking into charter schools. So what of the working class folks who lived in the cities, perhaps in slums? Perhaps they're being pushed into the dull, spread out suburbs from which there was a mass exodus of young professionals. Perhaps, thanks to the cruel discrimination that fuels gentrification, they're being forced into the places no one else wanted to live anymore. Perhaps the forces of slumming that Jacobs outlined in 1961 are going in reverse. Perhaps. I'll end with a little factoid. Ferguson, Missouri, a city that is 64% black with a median household income a bit below $39,000, with the police force and court system that the pre-sessions Department of Justice concluded was discriminatory and predatory, is a suburb. One that, according to Wikipedia, was 99% white in 1970, nine years after this book was published. I checked Google Maps. Ferguson is a half-hour drive into St. Louis proper. In that sense, it's more analogous to Randolph than it is to Roxbury. Roxbury, after all, is right next to Northeastern University, which is building and expanding prodigiously. They just built this beautiful research building on the outskirts of Roxbury, which I think is there to attract high-value graduate students. I wonder where those grad students, with their limited research stipends and desire to live close to their lab, are going to live. Speaking of that part of Boston, next week we'll read Good Neighbors, Gentrifying Diversity in Boston's South End by Sylvie Tissot. This episode is based off The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. It was written in 1961 and published by Random House. Writing, music, narration, and production by Ajay Pandey. This is an independent study for UMass Amherst under the guidance of Professor Jenny Adams and Professor Sanjay Arwade. For questions, comments, critiques, and concerns, you can contact me at apandey at umass.edu. Thank you for listening.